Good morning. John chapter 17. You can return there in your Bibles this morning. Uh, We are in the exact same passage that we were in together last Sunday. Uh, Although that's the case, I feel confident that this morning's time in John 17 is going to have a very different feel than it did last week. Uh, Several words might potentially describe the difference. Academic could be a word that could be used to describe the different feel this morning compared to last week. Theology heavy, maybe. Heady. I think it's at risk of sounding that way, and I hope that it will not be, not in a bad way. Uh, Usually when a sermon is described with those words, it's not being paid a compliment. Um, And preaching can fail in that very direction. That's, That's a real possibility. A sermon that goes over and stays over the heads of the congregation, that would be a fail. Uh, A sermon that needlessly uses confusing terms, that would be a fail. Uh, A sermon that speaks about obscure subjects, as if everyone knows, that would be a fail. A, A sermon that focuses on something that is not relevant to the passage in order to do such a thing, that would be a fail. But sometimes the kinds of criticisms that fit in the words I just used can come simply because the, the sermon fails one of a number of possible tests. Uh, I thought of three. Uh, is this about me? Does this feel relevant to my life right now? Sometimes if the answer is no, it can be accused of those things. Uh, do I find this subject personally interesting? this morning. Sometimes if it fails that, it can be criticized in those ways. Uh, Or this one, can I quickly and easily understand this? We can forget that the central role of preaching in the lives of God's people is to bring the ministry of God's word to his people. And we prioritize the preaching of scripture because of the sense that we have, that God has given us, that we all have that we could fill several large swimming pools with the amount of important issues and ideas that either have not occurred to us before, uh, do not feel important to us right now, or require us to have taken several runs at them before we start to understand them. We all know what it's like for there to be deep, crucial issues that we just don't wrap our heads around or even begin to without coming at it several points in our lives. And I think it's universally true that this morning's subject matter is very much that third thing. We hear today scripture talk about realities that we have to wrestle with over and over again. They're never just one and done topics that we think about and embrace. They just aren't that way for anybody. They haven't been that way for me. I can remember even as a teenager, arguing against the very ideas that the Bible is presenting to us this morning. And so what is this that we're coming to here? Well, now that we've seen an overview of Jesus' high priestly prayer for us, John 17, this morning what what we do is we stop and we chew on it a little bit. We reflect. And what we're asking is this, what has to be true about reality For Jesus' prayer here to make sense. Another way you could ask it is, what does Jesus' prayer reveal? What are the implications of the things he prays and the way that he prays them? We'll focus this morning on verses 1 to 19 of chapter 17, and we find three such implications. So I'd like us to read those 19 verses. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Three implications about reality itself, about the way that human history has existed and has taken place. The first implication that we find here, and we find it in the first five verses, is that this prayer reveals that God has planned redemption from eternity past. The first point here is maybe the simplest of the three. It's simply recognizing, given what he tells us here, that a plan of redemption has been in place since the world began. Now think with me about the implications of what Jesus has said here. And we're looking especially at the first five verses. How about the phrase that our Lord opens with? He says, Father, the hour has come. What hour? What's he talking about? He says that to the Father with no explanation. Does the Father know what Jesus has in mind as he says this? He said throughout his ministry, the hour has not yet come. My hour hasn't come yet. And now he says, the hour has come. We've already made the point several times in this study that this is referring to the cross most directly, the coming of this hour. Our point here now is much simpler even than that. It's, it's that this statement points out that events are happening according to a prearranged plan. You can hear that in his statement there. There's something that he came for that he's been aiming at, and he says to the Father, the hour has come. Jesus saying this to his Father also indicates that it's not simply a plan of Jesus in his own mind. The Father is in on this plan. He is a part of this plan as well. Jesus expands on that statement with more detail. He says, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. What is this plan involving? Well, it involves the Father bringing glory to the Son. We saw last week part of what that entails is the glory that is displayed at the cross. So this plan involves the Father bringing glory to the Son, thereby allowing the Son to accomplish his plan of glorifying the Father. We've heard Jesus talk like this before. We saw it especially back in chapter 13, and when we were there, we noticed some other places as well, where Christ's work on earth is described as work to complete a plan and then to receive a reward for completing that plan. Remember when we talked about that? Two places that we saw 
most particularly were Isaiah 53 and Philippians 2. Let me quickly reread both of them to you. What I want us to notice is that this plan centers around God's work to redeem a people for his own possession. The plan centers around salvation for sinners, redemption. So Isaiah 53, 12, this is right after describing Jesus' work to bear his people's sin on the cross. So verse 11 ended with, and he shall bear their iniquities. Then we read this, verse 12, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. You notice there the the arrangement. You notice the action and then reward. It's because of his bearing the sins of his people that he has divided a portion. It's because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. We see it maybe even, I mean, that's pretty clear, but it's at least as clear or more so in Philippians chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 6. This is what we read from Paul. He says of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that next word again. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see again there this exchange, this plan that is then accomplished and is rewarded by glory. What we read in verse 4 of John 17 is exactly the same. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. This was a plan of theirs. And Jesus is now poised to bring that plan to completion. Now, again, this should not be new to you. We've been hearing this and even talking about it uh, for a number of weeks now. This morning, what I want us to add to that is this. When When we think about that reality, when we read about those things described in works of theology, what you find is that there's a name for that. This, that's what's being talked about when people talk about the covenant of redemption. This is a covenantal arrangement between the Father and the Son to redeem a people for their glory. This is what's being described by that word. It's such a big deal historically that it even has its own Latin name. Any big deal that's gone back a certain amount of time, you're sure to find a Latin word for it too. Uh, This is what's referred to as the pactum salutis. And all that this means is that God has acted in history, indeed with the creation of history, He was acting with a plan in mind, and that that plan centered around God's intention to rescue, to redeem sinners by his love and for his glory. That's the first truth that is revealed here in what Jesus prays and the implications of how he prays. And it leads directly to the second, the second implication or theological implication that's revealed. To get to the second one, all we have to do is add one word to the first one. It's kind of nice. If the first thing that we've seen is that a plan from eternity past existed to redeem a people. The second thing that we see in his prayer is that that plan was to redeem a, here's the word we're adding, particular people. We saw this quite a bit last week as we looked at verses 6 to 10. That's the section that we're looking at again now. What we saw is that Jesus is very deliberately serving his people in this prayer. He is working redemptively in this prayer. This prayer is an effective thing in God's purposes. And we saw in verse 9, Jesus point out that his prayer is intended exclusively for the people whom the Father had given him. So Jesus' work by this prayer, uh, by this prayer was on behalf of a particular people, not 
people in general in an abstract, undefined way. He also pointed out in verse 12 that his work of guarding also was on behalf of a particular people. You remember that? As Jesus described his redemptive work there with that term guarding, he says about the people whom God had given him, he says, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. His work in guarding was selective. It was guarding of a particular people. We've been hearing about that reality lately in the course of what's been happening in John's gospel. But as with the first point, again now here, what we want to do is to be a bit more overt. We want to take these things and understand where they fit in our faith, where, we fit in the, where they fit in the story of the Christian faith. And so we, we seek to be a bit more overt. I mean, let's actually draw some conclusions from these statements and these ideas. And there are two of them in this case. So as we're thinking about what we find here, that God's eternal plan involved the redemption of a particular people, there are two, conclu- two things that we will draw out of that. The first is summed up very broadly with the word election. If he has worked for the rescue of a particular people, that means that there is a particular people he has chosen to redeem. Now, you may know that's a word with a great deal of baggage attached to it, election. It's often used as if it distinguishes groups of Christians from one another. So they believe in election. They don't believe in election. It's actually utterly incorrect. Every Christian has a doctrine of election. Historically, that is, that's not where the debate is at all. There's no way whatsoever for that not to be true, simply because of the statements that are made in Scripture. We have to do something with them. Ephesians 1 tells believers of God who, starting in verse 3, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, there's the word, eklegomai, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. If the Bible never speaks about it ever again, we we all now have to have a place in our thinking for a before the foundation of the world choosing of a people by God. If it never speaks about it again. But of course, the Bible does speak about it again over and over again. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we always give thanks to God for you. Listen, my friends, listen to the language of these sentences and recognize that we have to do something with these statements. We give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Paul will describe God's salvation plans by using the example of Jacob and Esau in Romans 9 when he says, When Rebekah had conceived by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Revelation 13.8 describes the beast of the book of Revelation. It says, all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Mark 13, 20, Matthew 24, 22, 1 Peter 1, 1 to 3, Romans 11, 7, 2 Timothy 2, 10. Acts 13, 48, the apostles have just shared gospel truths and it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We have to do something with these statements. And I I, I lay them out for you so, so that you can understand. The bare reality of election is not the debate at all. It never has been. No Christian can deny the category of election. 
The debate is over the question of the basis for election. What's the basis for God's choice, for his electing purposes of his people before the world began? What was it based on? That's where the debate has always lay. And there are two possibilities. Option one, he chose his people based on nothing in them, but solely upon his free and sovereign will. That's option one, historically. Option two is that he chose his people based on looking forward into the future and foreseeing who would choose him, who would put their trust in him, and then choosing them beforehand on the basis of the choice that he sees in them. So what distinguished his chosen in that situation from everyone else that he passed over is the choice that he saw them make to trust him. Those are the two options that have battled it out for some time. And the battle between those two options has come to be named by two men in history who interacted over exactly this question in the early 1600s. It's maybe a bit unfortunate because it's a battle that has raged since uh, the early church. But because of the writings and because of the time, it, they came to take these names on. So this was a battle that was, that was played out in the church between John Calvin and Jacob Arminius. Option one that I just gave to you is known now as the Calvinistic understanding of election. Option two is known as the Arminian understanding of election. Not Armenian, that's a person who lives just east of Turkey, Arminian understanding of election. Those guys were in the 1600s. That debate is a pickup of what had been coming and what had been settled in some ways, but reemerged then in the Reformation from the early 400s. Augustine battled with a man named Pelagius over very related issues. And Pelagius was then condemned by the church in the Council of Ephesus in 431. What, what happened with Calvin and Arminius was the, the real question was, is Arminius a Pelagian or not? Is he something of a semi-Pelagian? There's a lot of ties between those two battles. But for whatever reason, Calvinism and Arminianism are the names that have stuck to this issue. This question of what's the basis for God's choosing of those whom he will save. And there are a great number of reasons that I strongly disagree with the Arminian understanding of God's election. But what I would do now is just explain the main reason that I disagree with it. It's that in that second scenario, the one who would then be making the decisive act when a person is saved is who? It's us. What distinguishes you, if you've come to know and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and your next-door neighbor has not and does not, what distinguishes you from them is that you were smarter, you were better. God chose you and not them because he saw you. For the foundation of the world, he saw you with no additional help necessary compared to your neighbor make a faithful, believing choice. And it seems to me that in that scenario, at least three things clearly taught in Scripture have now been violated. Number one, we have now disagreed with the way that the Bible describes our ability before God saves us. How does the Bible speak of us before a preemptive, outside of us, act of grace and mercy towards us. Ephesians 2 describes us as dead in trespasses and sins. By nature, children of wrath, it says, like the rest of mankind. Dead. Another thing that we now would disagree with, as far as I can see it, in this second option, is that we would disagree with the Bible's repeated description of salvation. 2 Timothy 1.9, let me read this, just notice what Paul is emphasizing. He says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, 
not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. What is his entire emphasis there? It's that the calling was a calling on the basis not of our works, but of what it calls his own purpose and grace. You have Ephesians 2, 9, that says that our salvation is the gift of God. And then again, he specifies, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now hear that. God's purpose in doing it this way was that no one may boast. All glory is to God for our salvation. If I took the decisive step in my salvation... What distinguishes me from those who will feel the wrath of God forever? If that's the case, then at best, I share the credit and the glory. At worst, there's a sense in which it's all owed to me. That seems to me another way that we would be disagreeing with very clear testimony of Scripture. The third would be that we've now contradicted Paul's express example of this question that he gave us in Romans 9, verses 10 to 13. You might turn over there. We'll just be there briefly. But the context is so important because Paul is speaking about this very issue there. He's speaking about salvation and about God's sovereignty in this. When he talks about Jacob and Esau, he emphasizes there that God's election of Jacob over Esau was made before they had done anything either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Friends, the entire purpose of that example was to refute the Arminian explanation of God's electing purposes. And so we are left with the first explanation of his electing purposes, which is that he did not choose us according to the unaided choices he foresaw that we would make. No. On what basis did he choose us? He chose us according to the purpose of his own will. He called us not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which, of course, are direct quotes of Ephesians 1 and 2 Timothy 1. Now, obviously, that does not just tie everything up real nicely in a bow for us in terms of the thoughts and the questions and the wrestlings that we would have. It still leaves questions in our mind. The purpose behind who God chooses graciously, mercifully to save and who he doesn't isn't found in us. Fine. But what is the purpose then? What does the Bible tell us? We'll turn for just a moment to Ephesians 1.11. And as I read this, you can just consider this verse a chosen-by-me representation of the many other places that sound exactly like this. I find it necessary just to read one example because it uses, in many cases, the exact same language. Ephesians 1.11 In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. And you can stop there. There are two things he just said regarding this, what he calls their predestinating work of God. He said it is according to his purpose, and he said that it is according to the counsel of his will. Now, we can be honest. In one sense, that does not bring all that much out of the realm of mystery for us. Does it? But what it does make clear is significant. Because it makes clear that the things that God does, all that he does, including this very subject, what God does, he does in accord with a purpose. And what he does is, is accurately described as an action of his will. That's actually huge in this wrestling that we're talking about. When I throw a dart blindfolded, at a map and hit some place, that darts hitting that particular place was not an action of my will. It was what's called an accident. It was random. Or for that matter, if we're thinking about these two options, if I threw 80 darts at the wall and some of them aimed themselves at that place, 
that too would be not an action of my will. That would be an action of the will of the dart, wouldn't it? And God says here that his actions regarding salvation are in accord with the counsel of his will. Do you see how relevant that is to what we're talking about? Those are statements that we can trust. He is working with a purpose, and the divine will that it reveals is a will to redeem sinners, to bring them to himself by the giving of his only son. He is looking out on a, on a mankind who have rebelled against him in its totality, who deserve no good thing, and he has in his kindness willed by the death of his own son to reach out and rescue a great many for eternal presence with him and glory and blessing. There is much that he has not revealed to us on these subjects. There's no question about that. But my friends, the path to salvation for a sinner is not one of those things. He has told us how to be saved, and he's commanded us to pursue that. It brings to mind a verse that I think is well worth memorizing. It's even easy to memorize the location. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. I can grab hold of that faster than some random numbers. And we'll come back to Deuteronomy 29, 29 before we're through this morning. But let me just read it to you here. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So let's just remember why we're talking about all of this, where we are uh, this morning. We're talking about all of this because what Jesus prays here only makes sense within an eternal plan that involves the choosing of a particular people who were given to the Son by the Father in order for them to be redeemed by his work on the cross. The way he prays only makes sense in that context. And so this first outworking of the second point, that's 2A, you could call it, was thinking about what the Bible teaches about election, that term. I told you that there were two of these. The second is very much related to that one, only it goes a little bit further. Yes, it can even go a little bit further than what we've seen so far. Jesus' prayer here reveals not only that the redemptive plan itself had a particular people in mind, but that therefore Jesus' actual redemptive work was done on behalf of that particular people. And we can see this here in John 17, both in the fact that he limits the extent of his prayer to a particular people, as well as in simply the logic that Jesus is reasoning with throughout the prayer. The entire time his statements assume the fact that the Father's work in this plan has been toward a particular people and that that has been his will. So in verse 6, Christ manifested the Father's name to whom? It says, to the people given to him by the Father. In verse 9, he says, the whole prayer is being offered for this people. In verses 11 and 12, it's this people that he asks the Father to guard. He's made clear back in John 15, 13, that the gift of his substitutionary death was made, he said there, for his friends. Chapter 17 is not the only place by far in John's gospel where the, his redemptive work is spoken of in such particular terms. But this prayer certainly is the loudest place. Now, let's just be very clear. What we're talking about here in this two B, after election, what is this other thing we're talking about? We're talking now about Jesus' work on the cross. What we're saying is that just like Jesus was not praying for every person in the world in this prayer, he also wasn't working redemptively for every person in the world. He wasn't dying for every person in the world. He was dying for the people who belonged to him and the Father had given him to come on this mission and to complete. The book of Hebrews is extremely helpful here to us because simply of the statements that it makes about what actually happened at the cross. Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the people 
at the cross. Listen to Hebrews 9, 26 to 28. Listen to this language. He says, but as it is, he, Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now you heard two things there that are relevant to what we're talking about. In verse 26, you heard that at the cross, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And you heard in verse 28 that Christ on the cross was offered, it says, offered once to bear the sins of many. You can sum all of that up like this. We're hearing there that Jesus' death on the cross actually did something. It actually accomplished something. And that's important in what we're talking about here because some have tried at times to suggest that at the cross, what happened was that a great potentiality was created. The cross potentially paid the sins of every sinner in the world. And there are some ways in which that's meant that I I can even understand what, I can sympathize with some of it. Some of that is okay if what we're trying to describe is, for example, the value of the atonement or the extent of the power of the atonement. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is certainly sufficient to atone for every sin that has ever been committed. There's no doubt about that. No one has ever struggled with that. But hopefully you see from the Bible's wording in these places that I'm reading to you, hopefully you see the problem. If the cross did in fact atone for sin, if sin was born, If sin was set aside because of the cross. And if that is a death that's died for everyone who has ever lived. See the problem. The problem is there is never going to be any judgment. Hell will be forever empty. And that sounds great except for the fact that that's not at all the picture that the Bible gives to us. About what is coming in the future. It violates the clear teaching of Scripture about a coming day of judgment and wrath against unbelief. And so traditionally, the way that this is all articulated is to say that while Jesus' death is surely sufficient for the sins of everyone, his death on the cross is efficient only for those whom the Father has given to the Son to rescue. And more than that, what the context of John 17 makes clear is that Just like all the preparatory work that led to the cross, just like Jesus' prayer, even, was for his chosen people, and his guarding was for his chosen people, and like the Father's being asked to keep his chosen people, and that the Father gave him a chosen people, so also the cross was by design the payment for the sins of his chosen people. There's a song sung to our Lord in Revelation 5, 9. It says, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Like the rest that we've seen this morning, it historically has a name. This is what we consider the doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement. Not limited in terms of its power, but limited in terms of its intention and application. No one for whom Christ died will have to bear the responsibility for their sin. Why? Because it has been born already. Spurgeon posed it as a question very well. He said, if Christ has died for you, you can never be lost. If God God punished Christ for your sins, he will not punish you. How can God be just if he punished Christ, the substitute, and then punished the man himself afterward? There is no possibility whatsoever of Christ dying for your sins, and then you, through your own unbelief and rejection, 
now having your sins require a second payment. How short is the hand of God that he would send his son to die for you and then not be able to bring you to himself? It's all John 6 all over again. This, this, remember Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. The cross is not a Hail Mary pass, fingers crossed plan. That is not what the cross is. It's the culmination of a plan ordained from eternity past. The plan for which creation itself happened. A plan pursued relentlessly by the triune God. This must be the case for what Jesus says in this prayer to make any sense. And thus, it's the second implication of what we're seeing here. There's a third and final implication for us to add to those two. We've seen that Jesus is describing a plan of God made before the foundation of the world. We've seen this plan to involve the choosing of a particular people for the Son to redeem. The third implication of his prayer we see in verses 11 and 19, it's that this prayer reveals that this whole plan is sure to succeed. Because its success, in fact, hangs on the Father's love for the Son. How unlikely is any plan whose success hangs on the Father's love for the Son? Not very unlikely. You can think of it in the opposite terms. This plan is in danger. The people being aimed at in this plan are in danger only if the Father chooses not to honor the Son and grant his request. You remember the request that he made. Verse 11, Father, please keep them in your name. Verse 12, I guarded them while I was with them, but now I'm coming to you. Verse 15, I ask you to protect them from the evil one. This is the request that has been made. And to see why it is inconceivable that the Father would not answer that prayer, you just need to remember verse 2 of this chapter. The reason the Father had sent the Son in the first place was, quote, to give eternal life to all whom the Father had given him. It is schizophrenia for the Father to deny the Son his request. It's the whole reason he has sent him. Those whom the Father has given to the Son, the Son has given the revelation of God. He leads them into true knowledge of God, which verse 3 equates with being given eternal life. And those whom he has saved... We can now think of John 10, 28. You see why people say that this prayer is kind of the summary of the whole gospel of John. Uh, he said back then, John 10, 28, I give them, speaking of his sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all and none is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's a drum as well that has been beaten throughout this gospel. And it's at the heart of this high priestly prayer of Jesus. Since we're in the business this morning of identifying theological terms and trying to grow in our ability to recognize these things, the one behind what we're talking about here goes by many names. You'd expect that if you're thinking about something as precious as this. <laughs> You'll hear the words, eternal security to describe what we're talking about here. You'll hear the words preservation of the saints to describe this. You'll hear perseverance of the saints. I am not ashamed, Paul will write a few decades from this night in 2 Timothy 1.12. I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Who's guarding what has been entrusted to his people? He is guarding. The church has put this into song with these words for more than 200 years now. Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. 
And so with our time short here, I, I want us to return to that verse in Deuteronomy that we read earlier. And we go there because, really, because of the depth and the mystery of the things that we have looked at here. They create deep wrestlings in us. And really, they require a lot of study and thought to work out in our minds because there are a great number of questions that they, that they present to us. And I would just encourage you, maybe this is a general statement, I hope it's helpful. I would encourage you with the thought that whatever questions th these truths may be eliciting in your mind, please be encouraged with this. They are questions that have been being asked and answered for hundreds of years. We are not the first people that they've occurred to. And I promise you that if you're wrestling with some of these realities concerning election and particular redemption, that for many of the questions that you might wrestle with, there really are resources and answers that you will find helpful. We've got many of them in that library right there for you to take and borrow and please return if you think of it. But it certainly is true that God is here cracking a door open slightly. Uh, letting us in on the reality of his workings, even as he leaves a great many things mysterious to us. There's no question about that. And it's a place where the statement made in Deuteronomy 29.29 becomes very important. Let me read it again. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. I think of this verse in this context this morning. Because of how often the truths of God's sovereignty over our salvation, how often it can lead people to a place of paralysis and sometimes even a kind of terror. Because it, it produces a question like, does this mean that there is nothing I can do? Does this mean that I might be lost forever no matter what I do? My friends, it's crucial that we understand ourselves and that we teach our children, that we teach each other, that that feeling of terror and helplessness is coming only as a result of trying to peer into the hidden will of God. The secret things belong to the Lord doesn't just mean that there are secret things. It means that we are supposed to set our minds to make our choices based on what he has revealed to us. And when it comes to the subject of personal salvation, what he has revealed to us is that the family of the redeemed, the elect, is composed of exactly every single person who has responded to their sin's need by running humbly to Christ for forgiveness. John 6, 37, Jesus said in the same gospel, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You hear that? Secret things belong to the Lord. What has he revealed? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you wonder if you are one who the Father has given to his Son? Come to Christ. Don't sit and wonder if you belong to God's people. Act in such a way that would confirm that you do. Peter says exactly that in 1 Peter 1.10. He says, therefore, brothers, all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And the way that he's saying to do that in that context is very simple. He says, your union with Christ will manifest itself in your life. So be pursuing, be noticing the evidence of God's grace at work in you. Cling to him in dependency. Remain in his love. Trust him. Regard him as the king of your life, the one that you obey. And the one that you repent to when you disobey. For the simple reason that even when you disobey, you know that you are accountable to him. It doesn't get much deeper and much richer, much more comprehensive of what God has done in redemptive history than this prayer in John 17. And the encouragement would be this. Please do not let the questions that come to mind real and good questions about how to apply this to your thinking and how to live in light of these things. Do not let those questions keep from you the most profound realization that what we're really seeing here is that God is accomplishing his good purposes for all of those whose trust is in his Son. 
This is why Jesus can end the farewell discourse so definitively with the words, in me you may have peace, in the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Discovering these things brings many questions. The one thing it never brings into question is whether a person who has trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ is safe. We can wrestle with questions of the divine perspective, but the only reasonable human response to the things we have seen together this morning is what Paul wrote in Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is what he calls us to. Let's pray together. Father, these are indeed the kinds of things that lead us to marvel along with the Apostle Paul at how unsearchable your judgments are and how inscrutable your ways. And we pray together this morning in light of these things, asking you to help us. Father, help us to sense rightly how very small we are before you. God, would you cause your people to reflect on our own conversion, how we came to believe and to trust in Christ so that we would marvel at the realization that you were leading us to that day. You were at work, giving us eyes to see, removing the shackles and the bondage that we lived in to our sin, and that without your work in us, we never would have turned to you. God, we thank you for the richness of your generosity, that you would show undeserved mercy and forgiveness to so many when it was owed to none. Help us as we go now to grow in the capacity to live lives of gratitude because we know that our eternal safety and blessing has come to us as a gift. It's in the name of this Son of yours, our redemption, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.